Today's swap it number is one in 10. That's the estimated number of Americans who have addiction issues. That number seems kind of high, is that actually correct? It is, and that means that with 10,000 pilots here at Southwest, as many of a thousand of them may be dealing with some form of addiction. So today on the show, we're talking with Swap a Hymns Chair, Tom Stanley, about the upcoming holidays and what you can do to help mitigate the risk, and if you have problems, who you need to call. Double state all three, turn left, heading 140, runway 22 left, clear for takeoff. Clear for takeoff, 22 left, left turn, 140, stop I'm Amy Robinson. And I'm Kurt Heideman, and here's our interview with Tom. Tom, let's start by talking about the HIMSS program, what all it encompasses, and how you personally got involved. The HIMSS program is an FAA protocol used to return pilots with addiction issues, substance abuse, back to the line for flying. It is administered in conjunction with the FAA, the company, and the union, and it involves starting with a course of inpatient treatment, uh, 30 days, and then a series of monitoring and medical interventions that take about nine months to return a pilot to the line, and then career-long monitoring for their disease of substance abuse. And how did you get involved with the program? Well, I uh, I always like to say I got involved because I drank too much, but I started out as we approached the holidays, like a lot of our pilots, I was drinking and uh, doing what I thought was, you know, work hard, play hard. And I wound up getting to a place where when I started, I couldn't stop. And that led me just after Christmas to say, I've got to stop doing this and I have to stop drinking. So... I stopped drinking. Uh, I was involved with some of the folks in the Baltimore base at the time, talked to the HIMSS folks there, and started my own process of recovery, which began in 2009 and continues to this day. My involvement with SWAPA started about three years ago, at least in, the, in terms of being the HIMSS chairman. I was approached by then Vice President Mike Panabianco, who had known me when I was drinking and when I was sober and asked me to to come on and to take over administration of the program. I've heard your personal story before, but can you share with our listeners what that is and how you kind of got to your journey? Sure. I know now when I first picked up a glass of alcohol and drank it, which was actually when I was 14 years old, that the very first time I ever became drunk was what we would characterize now as alcoholic drinking. Of course, I didn't know that at the time, but that's where my story started. I went through high school drinking. I was a tall person, so back then the drinking age was 18, and I was able to buy alcohol for my friends and for myself without getting carded. I went from high school directly into the military, and in the military I fell into a culture of the work hard, play hard attitude so I would fly during the day and you know, drink after work. And for a long time, that was okay. It seemed to be all right. I, was, I fit in with the, a group of people. Alcohol gave me what I call social lubrication. Um, I was able to be less reserved, you know, more outgoing at parties, and people seemed to really enjoy talking to me and who I was. And I, so that became part of my story because I really felt that the alcohol was what made me who I was. 
as I went through time, through my military career, and then eventually as I faced Southwest Airlines, I started to get a sense that I was drinking in a way that was not normal. As we progress in our disease, we start to try and normalize our behavior. And I certainly did that. I surrounded myself with a group of friends who did what I did. They drank the way I did. You know, we enjoyed the same things, but it always surrounded alcohol. And eventually, I found myself with fewer and fewer friends because as I increased the volume and, and times that I would drink, there were just simply not enough of those guys around me anymore. And eventually, I was alone. That was when my struggle really started because I, I then started to do what I, what I now see a, the pilots that I counsel start to do, which is seek a way to stop drinking, but do it in a way that they don't have to tell anybody. They don't have, they remain in the darkness. Uh, it's all very private. I got to this point by myself and I'm going to finish this by myself. I spent a lot of time reading books on how to end my addiction without going to AA because I heard AA was a big cult and you know I didn't want to be public about things. And the problem with all those books was they ended with a sentence that said, after doing all of these things, simply stop drinking for the rest of your life. And I was like, well, if I could have done that, I didn't need the book. And I struggled like that for a period of about seven years that I can document, driving back and forth to work, going back and forth to the airport. I didn't ever go through TSA in what I considered to be an intoxicated state, but I was certainly hung over a bunch of times. And I do know in my heart that at the end of my drinking career, I was approaching the point where I was going to make the choice to go to work intoxicated. I just, I know that in my heart. And I got to a point on December 26th of 2009 where we call it being sick and tired of being sick and tired. I was miserable and tired and at the end of my rope, and I simply said, enough is enough. And I started to take the public steps that it took to enter a life of sobriety and begin the recovery that I'm in today. First of all, thank you for that. I mean, that's a difficult story to tell. I think it's a difficult thing to share publicly, but let's talk a little bit about the HIMS program itself. About how many pilots uh, participate in the HIMS program regularly or, or currently or, or annually, or what, what are the numbers? The current company number that we have is about 140 pilots that are actively in the program under monitoring. That number is actually a little bit smaller because there was an FAA change about two years ago that made this a career-long special issuance. It doesn't capture the folks that are in the program who, before the point two years ago, you could be quote-unquote released. So you were still expected to maintain sobriety, but you're no longer in active monitoring. So that number is probably closer to about 200 pilots that are actually out there in our pilot group that are in some form of recovery. And is that a number that's higher or lower than usual? Is, is the number growing recently or has it been pretty consistent? We have seen an uptick through COVID. Uh, the first year of COVID, we essentially put a pilot a week into recovery at Southwest Airlines. Since then, it's fallen off slightly, but our normal numbers are between 20 and 30 cases a year. This year is right on track with about 23 cases, and our numbers mirror other major airlines, generally 1% to 2% of the pilot group. When do you actually get involved in a case? Like, at what point do you get called or you start working the case? It really varies. Each one is unique in that 
how they are approaching the, the program can be either individually. Sometimes we'll get calls from pilots asking for help. I don't, I'm kind of in the place that I was. I'm at the end of my rope. I don't know what to do. Help me. Sometimes the pilot will come to us because of an event, particularly a, a DUI, sometimes a, another legal event or a hotel sort of event. And sometimes we get family members that call. And it, so it varies. I, I prefer to be involved as early as possible and to begin the counseling as soon as, as we can get involved. Because when a pilot calls me, and there are pilots out there that will know this, that it, it's not an instant thing. It can sometimes take months, even up to a year or so, of talking actively with a pilot to get them to the point that they're willing to accept and ask for help. Talk to the membership about, uh, walk them through the process. So they, you say it takes a year, but then let's say they finally say, yes, Tom, I need help. What happens? So our process is, it all begins with a phone call to me. When you call the number that's on the website, you will actually talk directly to me and we will enter a, a confidential space. It's confidential to the union and it's confidential to the company. We'll have a conversation and determine where you are and what you need in your personal situation. After we go through that process, I will describe in great detail every single step along the HIMSS process, every single element that's involved. We'll talk about insurance, we'll talk about disability, all of those things. And at some point, once the pilot comes to the level that they want to ask for help, formally entering the program actually sounds kind of silly, but it's a text message to me. It'll begin with a simple text that says, here's my name, here's my employee number, and I, I want to enter the HIMSS program. Once that process starts, we reach across and we, we exit a purely confidential area, and it, it grows. We have Swapper resources and Southwest Airlines resources that come together to enter the pilot into treatment, and that can happen very quickly in a matter of a day or two, and then start them down the road to recovery. So you said that you've had about 23 cases so far this year. Do you have an uptick over the holidays typically? The holidays are a, a very hard time. They're a hard time for me personally because of my personal story. My recovery date's the 26th of December, which means the last day I was ever drunk was on Christmas. So that's always kind of a hard time for me. And I'm not alone. Many people have issues through the holidays, either emotionally or with substance abuse. It's a time when society as a whole, you know, let's face it, we celebrate, we have parties. And at those parties, there's alcohol present. And I always say, not everybody that drinks is an alcoholic, but there are certainly those of us out there. If you are in that state and you go to one of these parties, it's a free pass. It's a time when everybody is celebrating and everybody is, is getting intoxicated. So you kind of let go. And that dilemma can be very hard because you know it's coming. You kind of know how you're going to act through it. You might not want to, and you, you have that internal struggle. So, yeah, it's a very hard time for folks, and it's a time when we do see an uptick in phone calls. And I would, I would really encourage anybody out there that's even thinking about it or thinks that they have a problem with alcohol to, to reach out and give us a call. So I'm going to ask you the question that every person I run into, every pilot, they all ask the same thing. And that is, how do you know you have a problem with alcohol or substance abuse? It's a very personal answer for every person. And it's a hard one to define. I've been asked that question a lot. And 
really what it boils down to is if you think that you have a problem, you probably do. There, there's a saying in, in AA that we all come to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous because of lovers, livers, and lawyers. And that one actually kind of rings true. Sometimes people realize that uh, their bodies are, are starting to have issues. Uh, I certainly started to experience that. I was starting to get a fatty liver. Sometimes it's the blue lights in the rearview mirror that you decide that you're on the way, you find out you're on the way home from a uh, party, and now you're looking at the, at the police officer walking up to you. And sometimes it's those around you, and a lot of times it's those around you who look at you and say, you know what, you're not as fun as you think you are at that party. And those are the those are kind of big indicators. So if you find yourself trying to limit the number of drinks that you have, or you find yourself saying that I need to change my behavior with alcohol, there's probably something we need to talk about. You talk a lot about alcohol, but there's also substance abuse as another subject. Is that becoming more prevalent? Or are you having more uh, arise in those cases at all, or during the holidays at least? Um, we are actually starting to see an uptick in this. I hate to sound old, but it's almost a generational issue. In my 50s, and what we see is in that, in that population of, of pilots in society, alcohol is, is prevalent. The younger that you get as we get into uh, people that are in their 20s and early 30s, we're starting to see an uptick in drug use. That can go anywhere from heroin to cocaine to some of the medical prescription drugs which mirror the effects of those substances. So we are starting to see an uptick in those cases. I'm curious, with the legalization of marijuana across a lot of the country, is that having any impact? Have you seen any change in, in that behavior? or is that? I'm actually surprised because we actually all thought that as THC or marijuana became legal, that we would see more of an uptick. We have seen several cases, and usually it involves folks that are using that substance on a timeline where they believe that they're coming to work and they won't be detectable with a test. And usually those cases come to us when they mess up the timeline and get caught with a random test or something else happens at work, a hotel kind of incident. When a pilot enters the HEMS program and they graduate um, but has a relapse, what happens to them? Well, relapses are handled individually. The best case is that the relapse, if it occurs, is self-admitted, that the pilot calls us and says, you know, hey, life happened and I started using a substance or drinking again. In that case, we work with the pilot's AME and we come together as a team and we figure out what the best approach is. Each relapse is handled differently. Some of them don't require going back to treatment. Some of them do. It really depends on how far out of treatment you are and how far into your recovery. The harder cases are the ones that are brought to us either through random testing or potential legal action. Obviously, if someone's in the HIMSS database and they get a DUI and have to report that to the company, that gets noticed. So in those cases, again, they're handled individually. But at Southwest Airlines right now, we are a multiple, we call it a multiple relapse program. So your job is not in jeopardy, and how each case is handled medically by the FAA, we deal with in a unique situation for each pilot. You, you just said at Southwest Airlines, your job is not in jeopardy. Can you 
speak more directly and clearly about that because I think that's really why people are afraid of saying that they're having alcohol or substance abuse issues. Yes, and it's something that I talk to everybody who's ever flown with me will probably have received these words. There is a perception out there that when you call for help, that you're essentially ending your career. And that can't be further from the truth. Actually, those phone calls are the most important calls that we get, and that pilot is handled with dignity and respect and a lot of care from Southwest Airlines and from SWAPA. They're brought into a a place where they can recover fully from their disease and, and operate in a way that is safe and come back to work. So the only time that your job is in jeopardy at Southwest Airlines currently, if you face a random test from the DOT and you're found to be impaired, uh, the Southwest Airlines drug and alcohol policy currently requires termination. But outside of that, you know, potentially if you're in uniform, there are very delineated things, but they, they mostly involve being on property, actively drinking in a Southwest Airlines uniform. Outside of those events, your job is never in jeopardy. They can enter the HIMSS program, and there is currently an MOU that we have successfully used, which will allow them eventually to be reinstated. But those are each unique cases, and there's a lot of steps in the process. But actually, each pilot that we have had in a DOT situation uh, all of them have actually entered the HIMSS process. So you said if someone fails a drug test that they are terminated, but that you can get them reinstated. Is that something that can only happen one time? And that is true. The What we call one and done refers to being terminated after failing a DOT test. DOT regulations specify that you can never fail to DOT random tests. So if you were to fail two of them, you would be barred from certification as a safety sensitive employee by the DOT forever. Uh, The other category that's extremely harsh is if you're ever found drinking actually in the cockpit, that's another DOT area where they would say that you are barred from safety sensitive duties forever. Are all carriers the same way? In terms of the second testing, yes. Uh, because that's that's out of our hands, that's out of any carrier's hands, that's DOT regulation. How each carrier handles the first testing does vary. And actually, we're in active negotiations with the company to change our policy to be industry standard, which involves a pathway back to the cockpit under limited uh, last chance agreement sort of scenario. And they are unique to each pilot but it would allow the pilot to return to the cockpit because we all realize that alcoholism is a disease. And when you get to the point that you would be facing a DOT test that you might not pass, to get to that point, it is not a normal behavior, but you are also under the influence of a disease that is not allowing you to make sound decisions. A few questions ago, actually, I think Amy asked, she prefaced the question with, if you uh, graduate from Hims. Do you graduate from Hims, or is it now? It's a lifetime program, isn't it? It is a lifetime program. The FAA a couple of years ago changed it from a process where uh, I think I talked about a little bit earlier, where you would be quote unquote released 
that's the old system. The, the new system, the FAA realized that alcoholism is a disease. It's a disease that doesn't go away. So they worked actually with the HIMS community, the HIMS chairs and uh, company representatives, and they came up with a graduated process. So while it's a lifelong special issuance, it comes with graduated monitoring that decreases over time, assuming good recovery. And at the very end of it, the lifelong part of the process is that you simply have to go to a HIMS-trained AME to receive your medical. Tom, back to enrolling in HIMS. Is it up to the individual pilot to call you and, and be in touch with HIMS? If a spouse is listening to this podcast and knows that their pilot has a problem, can they call you or other concerned people? Ultimately, it is always up to the pilot to actually enter the process. However, if there is a spouse or a family member listening to this podcast, I would encourage them, if, if you think there's a problem in your family, we have family resources. We have an interventionist that we refer to that will actually get involved in a family situation to potentially help you present the issue to your partner or your family member in such a way that they would accept treatment and potentially enter. Uh, this really is a safety issue. It's uh, We want a safe airline and we want safe pilots. And as I said earlier, sometimes the family is the way they see things before the pilot does. And we highly encourage them to call us. So continuing in that same sort of questioning, is every pilot who asks to be admitted to the HIMSS program brought in? The answer to that is yes. If you ask for help, you will be accepted into the program. Uh, there's not like an entry test. It is really an issue of you coming to the point that you say, I need help with this disease. And every single pilot that asks for help receives help. And I guess my final question to you would be, if you were going to give a pitch to someone to call you, what would that be? I guess what I would say to the pilot that's that's wondering whether they should call is there's a there's a perception that when you call, there is a pathway that's laid out that involves things you don't want to do, and that really isn't true. What I encourage them to do is, and I would say is, if you are questioning, if you think you have an issue, let's talk about it. Let's have a conversation. And there are pilots out there listening to this podcast that know this to be true, that We've had a conversation, and they have not all entered into treatment. There are pilots out there that are currently in recovery with AA that did not need to take the steps of potentially entering treatment. So the, the real pitch here is give me a call, and let's talk about your individual situation, and you'll be handled as an individual with a unique disease with a set of circumstances that only you have. We want to thank Tom for taking the time to talk with us today. We know he's been very busy and appreciate his always being available to help our pilots out when they need it the most. And as always, we'd like to hear from you. If you have any ideas for us at all, please drop us a line at com at swaba.org. And finally, today's bonus number is 200. With close to 200 pilots currently participating in the HEMS program, that leaves quite a few pilots who still may be facing addiction issues. If you think you may be one of them, please don't hesitate to contact Tom Stanley. His contact information is available on swapa.org. So 29 left, clear to land. 
Clear to land 220 left, Southwest 2907. 